Amen. Awesome. Okay, you guys. Well, let's get into a teaching from the scripture before we're done. So why don't you stand with me because we're going to read the scripture together, okay? Um, So if you've been following along, you know we've been in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're finishing up chapter 5. It's been a minute, but it's taken us a while. But we're finally finishing up chapter 5. And I think you're going to really be challenged by this one, hopefully, in the best way. Okay, um, so... The scripture should be um, on the screen behind me. It's Matthew chapter 5 and uh, starting in verse 43. So if you wouldn't mind putting that up, that'd be fantastic. Okay, so why don't you go ahead and read along with me, you guys. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Wow. That is the word of the Lord, and like I said a second ago, so challenging. God, we just ask that this morning you would bend our hearts and shape our hearts around your truth and around your values, not the other way around. I pray that we would be truly Jesus' people in everything that we say and do. Amen. Okay, you guys can go ahead and take your seats. So welcome to Jesus' most radical idea. This is it. Enemy love. Love your enemy. Up until now, we've, we've looked at five different examples of what Jesus calls greater righteousness. And if you've been following along, you're familiar with what some of those things are. Jesus has stuff to say, uh, stuff to say about your sexuality. He has stuff to say about your marriage and your covenant to your spouse. Or he has a lot to say about your singleness if you're single. He has stuff to say about the way that you speak. These are all topics that we've discussed over the last month or so, and many of them are quite challenging. But this one, the last one, it takes things to a whole new level. Now, I've taught actually on this before, and as I was getting ready for this message, I was looking at some of the notes that I had taken last time, and I was just so convicted by them, and I thought to myself, man, we should be teaching on enemy love at least once a year, because it's so central to the heart of God. So a couple disclaimers before we launch into the meat of it here. Um, We're all going to be challenged by these words from Jesus. There's just no way that we would not be, myself included. And um, if we're not at least just a little bit uncomfortable with some of the things that Jesus has to say here, we're either just not reading it right or we're not being intellectually honest. And um, I don't know about you guys, but one of the things that I really appreciate about being in community with one another and being a student of the Bible is that we take it for what it says, not what we hope it says, and we try not to manipulate it or to change it, but to actually just hear what the words of God have to say and to hopefully follow him faithfully and follow him fully. So some of you are sort of already on board with this teaching of enemy love because you've either heard of it before, you've read some rad books, or you've maybe taught a message 
message on enemy love. I know my friend Brooke just finished her MDiv, and, and so I know that this is a topic you are familiar with and all of that. A bunch of us are in it, but we're sort of in it in theory, or maybe even a little bit in practice, but still loving your enemies is a hard pill to swallow, as we're going to find. Others of you, though, may have some mixed reactions um, with what I have to say today, um, because this teaching, quite frankly, it sounds absurd, especially to our American ears. So despite all of, the, uh, all of this being like a central part of Jesus' teaching, we just don't talk about enemy love enough in our culture. Um, and, you know, I've been listening to sermons my entire life. I've been going to church my entire life. I went to a Christian school. I've gone to two different Bible colleges. And still, despite the fact that this is a central piece of Jesus' teaching, we rarely talk enemy love. So for anyone who's wrestling with this topic and with this subject like, you're not alone. Welcome to the club. We're all kind of there. We're sort of catching up to Jesus in what he has, in what he has to say. So um, what my goal for today is to just do a little bit of Bible work, and then we're going to talk about how we actually live it out together. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to look at the counsel of Scripture and what does the Bible actually say. So the place to start when it comes to enemy love is the cross. It's the cross. The climax of the story of the Bible and the absolute core of its message is when the God of everything willingly restricted his power and allowed himself to be killed by his people who were in rebellion to him by um, loving them so that those very same people could be forgiven of sin and set free from the kingdom of darkness and accepted in the family of God. That is the core of the message of the Bible. So the full effect of humanity's evil and hate is concentrated on Jesus on Good Friday. And yet Jesus still somehow has the strength to overcome that evil with good. And he still somehow has the strength to love us and to save us anyways. So it's not a stretch to say that that is the sort of historically Christian view going all the way back to the first century. It's the origin story that launched the church. Therefore, his teaching on enemy love is not a fringe idea. It's like the meta theme, the meta theme of the whole story. And it's meant to like influence the, the, the life of his followers. And the second thing that I just want us to kind of like notice about that is that God's love is for us too. <laughs> you know, when we talk about enemy love, um, especially sort of the hard-hitting parts that we're going to get to here in a second, it's, it's easy to forget that God first loved us in this way. We were once, the scripture says, enemies to him. And while we were still enemies, he died for us. He saved us. And so therefore, when we talk about loving our enemy, it's like keeping in a line or on message or on the plot of what Jesus has already done for us. So we are secure in him. We find our identity and our purpose in him. And so once we recognize that God loves us in this way, we can give our loved selves away to our sisters and brothers. So please hear everything that you're going to hear today um, from that lens. You are passionately loved by Jesus. You don't have to earn it. You don't do, have to do an awesome job to keep it. As Romans 8 says, um, nothing can separate you. No one can separate you from the love of Jesus. So let me just ask you a question. 
If the cross is the ultimate example of enemy love, and if it's sort of the meta theme of the Bible, and if we're reminded by Jesus that he loves us like basically every day, why do we have such a hard time hearing Jesus' command for us to love our enemies? I think one of the reasons why it's so hard is because our culture is forming us in the opposite direction. Whether we're conscious of it or not, the Western world was sort of shaped in part by Machiavellian ethics, which we're not going to get into in depth here, but um, Machiavellian ethics is where the concept of dog-eat-dog comes from. It's either kill or be killed. you got to look out for number one. And that's just kind of how the world works, or at least that's how the Western world works. So we're trained by the West not to care for our enemies or love our enemies, but to actually destroy our enemies, annihilate our enemies. If your enemy strikes you, you strike him back. You retaliate or you seek revenge. It's just sort of the cost of doing business in the West. It's, an, it's, it's like a, an implied part of our, of our culture. In fact, one of our favorite movie plots is that um, plot of, of vindication. Because they give us this opportunity to like live out our revenge fantasies and, and stuff like that. And then it wasn't too long ago, I I saw this guy who was wearing this t-shirt that said, see what happens if you tread on the stars and stripes. You know, it's just this this attitude that we have here in the West, and particularly in America, that if you are our enemy, we'll show you what real power looks like. We'll show you what violence looks like. So rather than being sort of conflicted about the use of force in like, quote unquote, just war, There's this competing meta theme in our culture that is oriented instead around America's excessive power to dominate our enemy. Fortunately, I I have a lot of friends and and even family who served in the military and basically anyone who's been deployed that I've talked to anyways has a much healthier respect for the sanctity of human life and, and all of that. But there is this weird, strange, sad attitude in our culture that instead wants to dominate our enemy instead of loving, the, uh, loving our enemy. And the problem is that that same ideology that exists in our culture has infiltrated the ethics of the church as well in some really key ways. So what we want to do is sort of construct Jesus' argument We want to construct Jesus' vision, his ethics about what real love actually looks like. And we want to look at, again, the narrative of his kingdom. And we want to do that sort of biblically. So first, and again, this is already repeat from a couple of minutes ago, but uh, enemy love is the love of Jesus. Enemy love is the love of Jesus. Again, Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So this is the, 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 the hallmark of the love of Jesus. And we have life in Jesus. You and I enjoy relationship to Jesus expressly because he was willing to die for us while we were sinners, while we were in rebellion, while, as Romans puts it, we were enemies to him. So following Jesus' example means acknowledging this sort of American and Machiavellian uh, like biases that we have in Western culture and submitting them instead to the whole teaching of Scripture and to the teaching of Jesus and wanting to actually integrate our theology of God and our theology of love with the rest of our life. 
So we just want to like, this, where this comes from is like a desire to live our whole Bibles and to not have like some values and some ethics and some ideas that are out of sync with the message of the scripture. And so what I want to do is just like give you a, like a whole laundry list of scriptures that, that teach this meta-narrative of this meta-theme of enemy love. So a couple of weeks ago, Brooke taught on the, the passage right before this that started in verse 38. It says, you have heard it said, eye for an eye. You remember that? This is, a, again, another fairly popular teaching of Jesus. And again, that's, that's, that's Bible. That's the Torah. That's the, the book of Exodus. And that was the law that Israel was living under at the time. So in short, this was like the Old Testament way of limiting retaliation. That's what eye for an eye was. Eye for an eye is a way of limiting retaliation. Because in the ancient context, eye for an eye was a mild way of responding to evil. In the ancient context, if, you took, uh, if someone took your eye, you take both their eyes and uh, like a few of their fingers, just for good measure. There was like excessive uh, retribution or excessive re- revenge. So you would pay back evil with more evil and you would do it excessively. So Jesus is essentially reclaiming the heart of God from the Torah and saying, that's actually not my heart at all. And then he takes it one radical step forward. He says, I say to you, don't even resist an evil person. Don't even resist an evil person. So eye for an eye, but one radical step further. He wants us to understand what Jesus, um, uh, what, what Jesus actually means by that. Uh, so to do that, we need to understand this Greek word anesthemai. It's this, the, the word that we find here that's translated resist. And it refers to violent military resistance. So anesthemai is like when your enemy harms you, you kill him. That's what anesthemai means. And that's sort of the consistent usage throughout the ancient world, both biblically and extra-biblically. So Jesus isn't saying don't resist evil. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying don't resist evil by using violence. Don't resist evil by using violence. Jesus' followers, stand up to evil, confront evil, resist evil, absolutely. But don't resist evil through a show of force. So violence and dominance and excessive force, that's anesthemai, and that's the way of the world. And as we continue, Jesus gives us a handful of examples of how to actually resist evil in a Jesus-like way. So that's what, that's what Jesus wants us to do, is to not actually um, just be a pacifist, but to actually take action resisting evil, but in a far more redemptive and a far more powerful way. So this is what um, Brooke taught on the other day. If someone um, slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek to them also. Someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek to them also. So um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've been harmed and hit or in a fight like that. There have been a few times in my life. There was a, a year where I lived on Maui and I lived with a bunch of, uh, like, or I lived next to a bunch of Hawaiian dudes and they did not like uh, me living in their neighborhood. And so we got into a couple of different fights and I thought that I had um, the power within myself to restrain myself from fighting back, but eventually I did in fact break down. But it's not always physical violence that Jesus is talking about here. There's other ways that people do violence and evil and chaos to us emotionally. There's way more than just physical violence that I think Jesus has in mind here. And in some cases, it's even harder to turn the other cheek. I know the, the couple of times when I got into a little tussle with those Hawaiian dudes, um, 
At first glance, it was just a physical fight, but then it turned into something more where I experienced their true hatred. And that was far more difficult to resist. And Jesus is teaching us how we actually do that in the kingdom of God. So again, this is often referred to as passivism. Enemy love, non-resistance is referred to as passivism, which it sort of is in a way, but it's that, that idea of pacifism has actually been sort of hijacked by some fringe political groups and, and, and things like that in our culture today. Jesus' point is actually different and much different than the typical argument of pacifism. His point that turning the other cheek is actually a form of action, not inaction. Turning the other cheek is an intentional, purposeful, non-violent resistance that tears down and actually pushes back evil. It actually is more effective than fighting fire with fire. That's Jesus' point. So this in our culture is perceived as weakness. But in the name of Jesus, it has a strange new power to sort of overturn and to subvert evil. And the best example of this that I can think of is something that I read about these um, a couple of weeks back. I was reading this article about um, a small little church in, um, in Lebanon, this little Christian church in Lebanon. And this was about like two, from about 2015 until the present day. I was reading this article about the rivalry between some radical extremists in neighboring Syria and these Lebanese Christians. And in 2015, there was this uh, pastor of a small little church there on the border of Syria. And his dad was killed by a group of um, like extremists from Syria. It's a really tragic story, and it was all because this man followed after Jesus. And so this pastor is now having to face what he is to do now. So the town uh, later was under siege by the same Syrian sort of rebel force, and um, it was about 100 days where they blocked off the gates and things like that, so new shipments of food and medical supplies couldn't go in. And so you have these Lebanese people who are literally dying from starvation and unsafe water, and they were dying of their medical illnesses and things like that because they couldn't get their medication. There were stories of young children being held at gunpoint, and all of this is really tragic, tragic story of being killed and tortured and all of that. So when we think a little bit about like what it means to have an enemy in our culture, it's not the same thing as like an internet troll or somebody who made something like, like has like something negative to say about you on the internet or something like that. It's not the exact same thing as what happened here in Lebanon. So, so the church responded in this beautiful way that I don't know if we would have the power or the ability to do except through the power of Jesus. Because there was this ongoing unrest, as you know, in Syria from 2015 on and those same people who were torturing and killing and tormenting um, these, these Lebanese Christians actually were the ones who became homeless and destitute. And they became refugees. So they crossed the border into neighboring Lebanon looking for help after having caused all of this violence and torture on the Lebanese people. And so... The, the Lebanese church at this point, they have a decision that they can make. And the decision is to like, just opt out of Jesus' teaching on loving their enemy or to opt into it. And it's just incredible. They, they saw that they didn't really have an option, but that they, despite the fact that 
that was the last thing they wanted to do, that they were going to love their enemies and pray for those who persecuted them, as Jesus teaches. And so what, what was like a very small church of maybe like a couple of dozen people over the course of a year grew to almost 900 people. And that was mainly because there were all of these Syrian refugees who had flocked into their town. And this pastor, whose dad was killed by one of them, was managed to muster up the strength in, in himself by the power of the Holy Spirit to love his enemies. There's a story of him like washing the feet of these Syrian refugees. And they fed them. They gave them water. They gave them places to live. They checked in on them weekly and incorporated them as a part of their family, which is absolutely incredible. There's story after story of this church, and, and, and it, it began to explode. It grew to this point where um, the, the church basically offered these um, like day camps for the Syrian refugees' uh, kids because the adults needed to go and actually find find work and find um, uh, employment. And keep in mind, none of this is like government funded or anything. It's not a program. It's not a wealthy church or a wealthy culture. This is just the church in a small little town on the border of Syria. Um, and so they ran this day camp day after day after day. And the man who, who actually had made the decision to run this day camp, to start this day camp, and the one who directed it, his brother had been killed by one of the Syrians. And every day he shows up to work and cares for these kids, day after day after day. And in the name of Jesus, he's loving quite literally his enemies. It's powerful. So you tell me, does that sound like, like an impotent passivism? Or is that like redemptive power? See, I believe that, that that is an example of great strength and of great power. They have this power from Jesus and it was like tearing down and pushing back the forces of evil. Because remember the scripture says that our battle is actually not against flesh and blood, but is against the powers and the principalities of this world. So this is not just like non-retaliation as pacifism, but the way to radical, powerful enemy love and forgiveness. So turning the, the other cheek is the way of Jesus. And the other example that Jesus gives us is he says, hey, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Again, this is a, um, this is a really important passage for our understanding of enemy love. So the context of what he's saying is this. In, in the first century, Rome, was enemy occupied, or Rome enemy occupied Israel. So there were Roman soldiers everywhere and they would stop Israelites in their tracks and make them carry their heavy packs and uh, they would carry them wherever they were going. So it was one of the ways that the Romans would sort of assert their dominance and, and, and shame uh, the ones that they were occupying. And so like the Roman Empire, they could have used horses, they could have used donkeys to carry their stuff, but instead they used these people that they were treating like dogs and they forced them to carry their packs um, so it was sort of like insult to in injury. So the Israelites, they were looking for the Messiah to free them from that captivity. But Jesus says, sisters and brothers, if he forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Take it an extra step. Double it. So this is about being willing to go above and beyond to accommodate your enemy. 
Pete Scazzaro, who wrote The Emotionally Healthy Church, this really powerful, powerful um, book on what it means to be a healthy leader. He says, you know that you're a servant of God by how you react when somebody treats you like one. When somebody actually treats you like a servant, that's when you know if you have grown and, and matured to the point of actually being a servant of God. So from that lens of the world, that's shameful. That's demeaning, carrying a pack for somebody else. Your enemy is dominating you. But really, from Jesus' perspective, from the kingdom lens, you're actually stripping the enemy of his power by willingly giving him double of what he wanted from you. That's overcoming evil with good. So what could be perceived as weakness actually has this strange new power to undermine evil and to push forward God's kingdom. Martin Luther King, uh, you can look at a, a whole archive of his sermons is um, recorded on Stanford's website, and you can uh, either read them or listen to them. I've been reading a lot of them lately, and this is what he has to say on enemy love. Martin Luther King, hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. If I hit you, and you hit me, and I hit you back, and you hit me back, and so on, you see, it just goes on ad infinitum. It just never ends. Somewhere, somebody has to, has, a, has to have a little sense, and that's the strong person. The strong person is the person who can cut off the chain of hate, the chain of evil, and that is the tragedy of hate, that it doesn't cut it off. It only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. Somebody must have the religion enough and morality enough to cut it off and to inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love. Ah, it's such a powerful thing. And of course, he ended up living those words. We all know his story. But it was, he lived those words powerfully. And we remember his story. And he pushed forward the conversation of racial equality in our country. And so his power, the power of his enemy love, outlived his own life now 60 years. So again, this lines up with Jesus' teaching. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. So again, this, there's this tendency for us to go, okay, nice, I like the point, I like the thought, but to essentially push it off to the fringes of our Christian practice because it's so radical, and quite frankly, it's really hard to deal with. We want to say, yeah, but who really is our enemy? And we sort of kind of push it off. How can we really be nonviolent in our resistance of evil? But enemy love, again, let me suggest to you, is central to Jesus' message and vocation. It's the meta-narrative of the Bible. And so what I love about Jesus is he's always the prime example. He never does something and asks us to do the opposite, or he never does something, or excuse me, asks us to do something that he's not willing himself to do. And that's what the cross is all about. It's subverting the powers of evil, and it's about overcoming evil with good, not by dominating his enemies through excessive force, but by absorbing violence on the cross. And he's willingly accepting violence against himself by letting his enemies kill him. And in so doing, he's claiming victory over the kingdom of darkness. So here's how that works, biblically speaking. If you uh, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter is um, wanting to stand in defense of Jesus. And so he pulls out his dagger or his fishing knife when one of the Roman soldiers comes at him and he takes a swing at him and sort of misses but lops off his ear. And do you remember what Jesus says in response to that? This is what he says to Peter. He says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. 
Do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? So in other words, he's saying, Peter, if I were trying to escape capture, or if I were trying to overthrow Rome, we would have plenty of firepower. But I'm actually doing the opposite. I'm actually letting my enemies kill me because the Father is bringing a greater victory through it. There's a greater victory that I have in mind and that the Father has in mind. And he says something really similar to Pilate the following day. You remember the the morning after. He's sort of in this sort of quasi-debate. It's not really a debate, but it's a quasi-debate with Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yeah, I am. And remember, in the first century paradigm, being a king and being in a kingdom was all about military dominance, overpower power with power. That's what it meant to be in a kingdom in the first century. So essentially, Jesus saying that he was the king of the kingdom of God was essentially admitting that he had been defeated by the Romans. But Jesus says this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But my kingdom is from another place. So the kingdom of God is breaking in through this non-retaliation. It's breaking in through this non-violence. And it's not weakness. It's actually his power that burst through the grave and overcame evil and became a movement that is unlike anything that the world has ever seen. So just think about the explosive power of Jesus' cross and what that introduced into the world. There's way more power than any, any violence or any force ever could. And like I said at the beginning, this is actually a prevailing theme. This is the meta theme of the Bible. Paul teaches how we can sort of overcome evil with good. He says this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. He says his purpose, that is Jesus' purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two and thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So there's some very interesting wordplay that's going on here. I absolutely love. He's saying by absorbing violence on the cross, instead of inciting more violence, he's actually killing violence. So there's a, there's a, there's a paradoxical wordplay going on here. He's actually killing violence. He's killing hostility. He's killing death by bringing peace. And now we have his peace. So that's the, that's the paradox. Colossians chapter 2 says something similar. He says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Okay, this more paradox here. I absolutely love this. The cross was the most shameful way to die. That's in fact what it was designed for, was to dehumanize you and make you less than a dog in your final breath. That's how Rome asserted their ultimate dominance over you, especially as a rebel um, to the, the kingdom of Rome. So it's this shameful way to die, but apparently, according to Paul from Colossians chapter 2, that Jesus' death on the cross was actually shaming the corrupt powers. It was actually shaming uh, the, the forces of darkness because he's absorbing evil into himself and he's triumphing over death. So this is what's known in the, in the world of theology as the triumph theme in enemy love, the triumph theme in enemy love, which you're, you're going to see it all over the place as you read the scripture. So um, my favorite metaphor that Jesus uses to illustrate the triumph theme is, is found in, in Matthew chapter 12. 
And again, this will illustrate just how much Jesus talks about this. He, he illustrates the triumph theme this way. How can anyone enter a strong man's house? And how can he carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder the house. So think about that for a minute. This is what Jesus is saying. In this scenario, Jesus is the robber. Jesus is the robber, and he's tying up Satan, and he's plundering Satan's stuff. And how does he do it? He does it by going to the cross, absorbing evil and absorbing violence. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, um, is, is another scripture that talks a lot about Jesus' nonviolence and his enemy love. And there's this dramatic symbol in, in Revelation chapter 5. It's this, this climactic moment. You guys remember where a scroll descends from heaven for the people of the world. But everyone's weeping because the scroll that descended from heaven, no one could open. No one was worthy to unopen it. So just think about that. You've got a message from God that you can't hear or receive because no one's worthy to open the scroll. Um, but then this is what one of the elders says to, to John. He says, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So he's essentially saying, hey, I know this would be bad news, but look, there's the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So the image of Jesus is of this ferocious lion who's triumphing over his enemies. And he's not, he's of Judah, he's a king, he's triumphed. And then this is, the, in the next sentence of Romans chapter 5, this is what one scholar says is the most mind-wrenching rebirth of images in all of literature. Then I saw a lamb. So the elder says, hey look, there's the lion. And then I looked and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne and encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So this is the focal point of the book of Revelation. And it's this new symbol of triumph through sacrificial death. Again, uh, the scholar Michael Gorman says, the shock of the reversal, the lion and the lamb, discloses the central mystery of the apocalypse. God overcomes the world, not through a show of force, but through the suffering and death of Jesus. And the invitation of Revelation is to follow the Lamb into the new creation, to take on the cross-shaped vision of what it means to follow after him. So again, uh, Revelation 12 puts it like this. He says, they, meaning Jesus' followers, have conquered him, meaning Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not even their own lives unto death. So this is how the people of Jesus see love. This is our definition. This is our picture of love. And it has incredible redemptive power. Self-giving enemy love is how you resist evil. And it's how you advance the kingdom of God on the earth. So there's this challenge that Jesus is teaching us. And it invites us to wrestle with, do you trust him enough? Do you trust him enough that enemy love is more powerful and effective at triumphing over evil than your ability to fight for your own interests? Do you trust him? Enemy love, self-giving, sacrificial, 
love. It's more effective at triumphing over evil than your own ability to fight for your own interests. One more scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You know, we like to hang up scriptures in our living rooms. This is not one that I've ever seen hung up in anyone's living room. This is not American, is it? Willingly accepting the plundering of your property because you know that you have a greater possession and an abiding one or an eternal one. This is again the reminder from Paul that we look at the things that are not seen, not at the things that are seen. And this is how a group of Lebanese Christians who have been tormented and martyred and killed by a Syrian refugee can in the next breath invite them into their home and call them sister and brother. This is amazing. It's got incredible power. Incredible power. So I've gone way over my time and we need to wrap up, but I want to end with a story. Um, this is a fun story, actually. A couple of weeks ago, um, we were sitting down at dinner, me and my, my kids and my wife. And my son Judah is uh, three, almost four years old. And we very often will, when we're putting him to bed, just tell him the gospel story, remind him of who Jesus is and how he's been forgiven of sin through Jesus. And all he needs to do is trust in Jesus. And so um, I, I asked him and routinely asked him if he's ready. Hey, buddy, are you ready to trust in Jesus? And he would normally say, no, not really, not really. But when we were sitting down at dinner this night, he looked at me and he said, hey, dad, by the way, I'm ready to trust in Jesus. And I'm like, all right, let's do this. And so it was really cool. Um, I actually, um, in, in, in that moment, I just, I asked my daughter, who's, who's nine, Isabel, and, and I said, I said, Isabel, why don't you remind Judah, what, what, what the gospel is and what it means to trust in Jesus. And it was amazing because um, she's nine years old and she like really beautifully articulated the gospel. It means that Jesus is king. It means that he's Lord. He died for you so you could be forgiven of your sins. So you could be in the family of God. And as her dad, I'm just like literally beaming with pride and like about to cry. And Judah goes, yep, that's it. I want it. I want in. And so we prayed with him. I laid my hands on his head and we prayed and we all prayed and then they started fighting. But anyways, it was a really beautiful moment. And so after dinner, I was like, you know what? We are gonna celebrate. And so we jumped in the car and we started driving off uh, to Dairy Queen, which is our favorite treat spot. And uh, so we were talking about what this decision made, uh, meant for Judah and Isabel had some things to say and I had some things to say and it's really fun, special. And then um, out of nowhere, Judah just goes, yeah, and then like if anybody wants to fight me, I'll just tell them, no, I don't want to fight because I'm a prince in the kingdom of God. <laughs> and I absolutely loved that, first of all, just because it came out of nowhere and it was super cute. 
Um, but we can choose to look at that all kinds of different ways. Maybe he's just parroting things that he's heard from other people. Um, his dad's a pastor, so he hears Bible verses all the time. Or, or, or maybe, who knows, three-year-old kids say all kinds of crazy stuff. Or we could just look at that and say, you know what? Maybe that's the seed of pure Christianity that's been planted in him. That the day that he trusts in Jesus, he realizes what the love of Jesus means for him. Is that he's not a fighter because he's a prince in the kingdom of God. It's actually pretty good theology. I was happy about that. Preston Sprinkle says that nonviolent, non-retaliatory, counterintuitive, countercultural, sacrificial enemy love should be the dominant, most pervasive rhythm of evangelical Christianity. Amen. It should be. That's it. So there's so many more things that we could say, but all that I want to do now is just to respond to this. Obviously, there's so many different applications in life right now. We haven't even talked about the way that our culture is, is getting more polarized and more toxic. And we're not going to talk about that. All we're going to say is, Jesus, how do you want me to respond to this radical calling that you've given me to love my enemies? So as we pray to close here, I just want to invite you to stand. Stand with me. And I'm going to lead you through a few just guided reflections as we pray. The first one is to just thank God because of his radical love for you. At the key moment of history, he forgave you. Amen. The key moment of history, he loved you. So choose to thank him because of that. And then it's probably pretty easy to think about those people in your life who you might consider an enemy. I just want you to think about, based on everything we just read, what God's heart is for your enemy. And just notice that as hard as it may be to accept, he loves your enemy just as much as he loves you. So far be it from us to withhold the love of God from others after we've experienced such radical love ourselves. In reality, enemy love is the most powerful force really in the universe that we've seen. It changed the epochs of time, it, it, it's changed every generation since. So now you have a role to play bringing the great power of Jesus' love to the world. We know that forgiveness is a journey and love is also a journey. But I just want to challenge you right now, if there's someone in your life who has felt like an enemy to you, would you just, before God, release that to him? Forgive that person. You might need to wake up tomorrow and forgive them again, and it might not quite be that simple for you. And I understand that. But the invitation that's on the table is that we would follow Jesus in this radical way of love. So God, make us this kind of people. Make us this kind of church. And we will be marked by 
the same love that you have for us.